We are now in the second to last week of our seven-week series in Malachi. Uh, We're entering into Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Uh, It's a text on tithing, uh, the practice of giving to God. And this passage is also a widely misunderstood passage. Often it's yanked out of its context and it is made to say things that it doesn't say at all. And before I say anything else this morning, let me say, I get it. If, If you're here and you're like, oh, I came on a money week. The church just wants people's money. Pastor needs a payday. I get it, especially with the news. I mean, there's all these news stories lately about bishops around the world misusing the church's money, buying like $22 million homes. I I get it. Sometimes I look and I think, why does the church want money when it's being misused? Let me say this. Bear with us this morning. I want to assure you again, if you're a guest with us, nobody asked you here for your money. We're really glad you're here. Uh, My hope for us this morning is just to see that um, what we do with our money and how we give our money uh, really does matter to God. And maybe you're you're not a believer. And I I would say, uh, if you're here and you're, you're kind of figuring out this whole Jesus thing, I would want to know what the scriptures actually say about money. I would want to know how a church actually talks about money before I call that church home. And maybe you're a believer and you've been tithing for a long time. I would still want that reminder of why I do this and why it matters. And maybe you follow Christ, but you still haven't figured out, should I give? Should I tithe? My hope this morning is that this passage would be helpful to us all. So before we get into Malachi, I want to lay down a quick primer on the practice of tithing. To tithe, it literally means a tenth. It's to give a tenth of one's possessions. Uh, The first time we see it in scripture is in Genesis. Abraham gives a tenth to uh, Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High. Uh, Throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, uh, especially in Leviticus, the tithe is set up to provide for the Levites. All of Israel, all of the 11 tribes, they give a tenth of their produce and crops to the tribe of the Levites because it's the Levites who become a part of the priesthood and serve in the temple. They make no income, and so the tithe specifically provides for them. There's a cool tidbit of info, too, that every three years, uh, Deuteronomy talks about this, the community would have this festival. And when the tithe was offered, the Levites would partake of it, the priesthood, but also the needy, also the fatherless, also the widow. And so when the tithe uh, was compromised, when it wasn't given, it wasn't just that the priesthood suffered, but the needy in their midst suffered as well. When you fast forward then to the New Testament, what does the New Testament have to say? I'll be straight up with you. It has no explicit command to tithe or not to tithe. Uh, There's none. But I want to say that the New Testament does presuppose tithing and it surpasses it. Uh, Jesus, for example, when talking to the Pharisees, he says, uh, you tithe mint and rue and every herb, herb, and neglect justice and the love of God, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In Christ's eyes, tithing is just a basic act of faithfulness. He doesn't abolish it. He says you should do it, but it's just the basics. Don't do it to the neglect of love and justice. Paul speaks a great deal about giving. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? So he's talking about the Levitical priesthood. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul's essentially saying the the tithe that was 
designated to provide for the priesthood in the new community of faith should be directed towards those that the Lord calls to preach the gospel. He even goes as far as to say, this is a command of the Lord. So while the New Testament has a lot more to say about giving, and we looked at this in February, you can go online, we have a whole series on what Jesus says about money. Uh, 10% in the New Testament, the tithe, I want to say is usually the radical bare minimum. And I say that cautiously because when we make giving about a percentage, we miss the point. Someone may be faithful and be giving sacrificially and be giving less than 10%. Uh, Jesus, he is more concerned about our hearts and about the way in which we give that orientates our hearts towards him. That we should be living our lives in such a way that our generosity continues to increase. Yes, our generosity is often in proportion to what we earn, but he is always calling us to simplify our lives so we can give more and more. And so that is why the practice of the tithe has been a practice of the church throughout the ages. It's why an offering is collected. Um, and yes, the tithe, it does cover pastoral sal- salaries. I won't deny that. It does. This is how, how, how we manage to do this full time. But it is not the only thing it covers. In the scriptures, we see the church taking offerings so that they can provide for the poor. That is especially a responsibility of the church and and of those leading the church, to make sure that the money is being used well, and especially for those who are marginalized. So with all that in mind, the longest introduction ever, uh, we're ready for Malachi. That's what tithing is, and this is the issue in Malachi. So the big question this morning is, Why does God want our money? First, we're going to talk about the curse of wallet-shaped hearts. Second, we're going to talk about the reshaping of our hearts. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the shape of God's generous heart. So if you'd open your Bible to Malachi chapter 3, let's read verses 7 and 8. God says, From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. This is a pretty big turning point in the book of Malachi. God explicitly calls Israel to return to him now. He says, enough is enough. We've addressed all the issues. Come back. Let's mend our relationship. And of course, the people ask yet another question. Well, how shall we return? And I want to say, we've been in Malachi long enough to know that this is not an honest question. This is not a question of inquisition about what they need to do. This is a question from a posture of defensiveness. We don't need to return. So God says, well, man, rob God. Yet you were robbing me. This word rob in the Hebrew is is a very harsh word. It literally means to take forcibly. It conjures up pretty violent images in our minds. You know, people with ski masks and guns. Um, It's a crazy thing to talk about finite humans robbing the infinite God. It's far easier for us to list the things that humans owe God. 
We owe him the ordering of the universe, of the sustaining of the universe. We owe him our consciousness and every breath we take. Uh, we are indebted to his unsleeping love, his continual provision, the way that he is with us, his unyielding faithfulness, his works of redemption. We owe God, and yet God says, you're robbing me. We owe him, and he says to Israel, you're robbing me. And of course, they say, well, how are we robbing you? Well, where do we start, honestly? In Malachi, we see that pretty much anything that's owed to God has been robbed from him. Uh, God says, you owe me honor and fear. In other words, your lives should be centered around uh, coming to me. You should make uh, me, Israel, your priority. You're robbing me of that. He says, you're robbing me of true service. You should be offering the very best of the best in your sacrifices, yet you give me second-rate offerings. You should be teaching truly about me, but instead you slander me. You say that I am absent, that I love evil. You're robbing me of the honor and fear due to my name. You're robbing me of the offerings due to me. Essentially, you are robbing me of the faithfulness that you owe me. You're robbing me. Israel, they've robbed God in so many ways. And yet, in all of the things that God could address and having them return to him, He says, you've robbed me in your tithes and contributions. Really? Tithing? Why tithing? In my later teens, uh, I think I've told enough stories at St. Peter's that you guys realize, like, I was a bit of a problem kid. Uh, Yeah, I started experimenting with drugs in my later teens. And originally, it was was just on the weekends, like Friday night. That was drug night. And then the rest of the week, you know. C pluses and C minuses, but uh, but then it became every day of the weekend, and within a couple months it became just every day. And the the, the crazy thing about when you're experimenting with drugs as a teenager and it becomes a habit, uh, pizza delivery doesn't really cut it for paying your drug bills. Um, So I had this money issue. How am I going to afford this this habit? And one night. I was living with my parents. I opened my mom's wallet. I took her debit card, and I went down to the 7-Eleven, and I took out $20 and went home. And nothing was said about it. So I tried again. I took out $40, and I went home. And nothing was said about it. So then I got a little confident, and I went out and took out $200. Uh, Two weeks later, my parents sat me down, and they said, hey, we're looking at our bank statement. There's excess of $400 missing from our bank from these withdrawals at a 7-Eleven. Do you know anything about this? And my parents, they had an inclination that something was wrong, like something was going wrong in my life. Like if he's going to rob us like this, something is wrong. But they asked about the money. Why did they ask about the money? Because if they followed the money, they would get to the heart. We have wallet-shaped hearts. Jesus says, where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he even goes as far as to say, you cannot serve God and money. When you rob, you're taking something that isn't yours and you're using it for yourself. So here's the thing. God isn't concerned as much about the lack of a tithe as he is about what withholding the tithe is doing to his people's hearts. If he follows their money, it will lead to what's really going on in the heart. Their treasure is getting invested in themselves. They're caught up in themselves. They don't serve God. They serve their own aspirations. 
and their world becomes significantly smaller. It revolves around their self-perceived needs and desires. When God's people withhold the tithe from him in a very tangible way, they are withholding their heart from God. And why would Israel do this? Well, in their time and place, in this context, they weren't in a season of prosperity. They were actually in a season of poverty. They, they were struggling. And to give a tenth of their produce? It's a deeper issue, though. Remember last week, we looked at uh, the real heart of Israel's disobedience was that they don't think God is faithful. They don't think God is trustworthy. And this passage comes on the heels of that passage The reason they don't give a tenth, even when it's risky to do so, is because they don't trust God. They don't think he'll take care of them. They trust themselves more than they trust God. And if they were to surrender that tenth, it would put them in a place of dependency upon a deity that they do not think even cares about them. Let's face it, we're not beyond this either. Many of us, we struggle when it comes to giving to God, especially giving of our finances to God, let alone 10%. And we can justify it. We can say, well, if I give 10%, I won't be able to save. And if I don't have a great balance in my savings account, uh, what will happen if something goes wrong? So you don't give because you want to save and you have a fear about what might happen in the future. Some of us, we say, well, I I can't give because if I give, I won't actually have any money left over for myself to get the things I want. I won't be able to enjoy life in the way that I want to enjoy it. So you don't give because you want to indulge. Others, you say, I can't, I literally cannot afford to give. But what you're actually saying is, I can't afford to burden myself. I can't afford to re-examine my life and make room within my life so that I can actually give from what I have. You don't want to bear the cost of it, the inconvenience of it. So we withhold our money. We all do this in various ways and we keep it for ourselves. But underneath all of the reasons that we have, there's a simple truth. We're not really sure that we can trust God. And when we keep our giving to ourselves like Israel, uh, we keep our hearts to ourselves too. And it's far more costly than we realize. Look at verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now when you hear this word curse, don't think uh, hexes and and voodoo. Um, You know, cursing and blessing in the scriptures are really about Uh, flourishing, life and death. It's about being within God's covenant and him uh, blessing you and making life flourish or him letting you go your own way. So when we read about cursing here, there's two things. The first thing is uh, simply what happens when we separate ourselves from God and center life around ourselves. The scriptural language for this is God gives us over to ourselves. So, When we are unfaithful in in our resources and in giving, how does God give us over to ourselves? What does that look like? Well, we become riddled with anxiety and stress and worry. 
A recent study showed that 79% of people, 79% say that money is their top source of stress. And of that 79%, 52% of those people said that money-related stress often keeps them awake at night. Money can also cause us to have bitter fights, even with people that we love dearly. Another study discovered that it takes longer to recover from money arguments than any other kind of argument. And couples, when they argue about money, it's often more intense. They use harsher language with one another, and the arguments last longer. It shouldn't surprise us then that they've also discovered that money is the top reason cited um, for divorce. Money issues, arguments. Another study reveals that um, high-income nations, like our own, struggle more with depression than low-income nations. Why does holding on to our money make us anxious, or worried, or stressed, or angry, or defensive? Why does it make us depressed? It's because when we hold on to our money, we think it's completely up to us to make sure that everything's going to be okay. And we're constantly aware of what we do or do not have. But deep down, we know no matter how much we have, we can never assure that everything's going to be okay. This is what's really happening to our hearts when we withhold from God. We're living for ourselves, and when we do that, God hands us over to the natural consequences of life without him. And we find ourselves living a frustrated life, cursed, unable to find peace. That's uh, the one aspect of the cursing. The other, as I mentioned, is the covenantal peace, the, uh, the, the part that God has made a deal with Israel, that if they're faithful to him, uh, he will bless them. But if they're unfaithful to him, he will curse them. And, and God is saying, look, if you follow me, Israel, like, I will bless you. And you will prosper in many ways, in health and in, in, and in economics and in your witness to the world. But if you don't follow me, if you're unfaithful, I'll hand you over to yourself. And, it, and it'll be stages of cursing. It'll get kind of bad. And if you don't return, it's going to get even worse. And if you don't return, it's going to get even worse. And so when Israel looks out the world and they say, why does it look like we're being cursed? Why does it look like God doesn't care? God is saying, because I do care. That I can't leave your unfaithfulness unchecked, but I actually need to let you deal with some of the costs that you might return to me. So when it seems like an odd thing that God picks tithing of all things to address with Israel in returning to him, he chooses tithing because he knows that our resources, the things that matter to us, our money, have a profound effect on our hearts that our money has a profound effect on how we trust God. And God knows that giving actually reshapes our hearts. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. God says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil 
And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now it's this part in Malachi where it's really, really easy to miss what's going on. A lot of bad theology is birthed out of these two verses. It goes like this. If you tithe, if you give God the the 10%, it says it right here, you can test God. He will hook you up. It'll be a life of bling. You know, it's going to be raining Bentleys. It's going to be raining tiaras. It's going to be raining mansions. Uh, If you just give, and God, it will be indebted to you. He will owe you. He will bless you. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's completely unbiblical. It completely distorts these passages in Scripture. God is not some sort of cosmic vending machine. And his blessings are not swayed by how much you're able to give to him. Think about it. He's given you 100% of what you have. Your life, your resources, your talents, everything, all from his hand. And you give him 10% as if that is somehow impressive. Even if you gave him back 100%, even if we could do that, we are simply giving him what he gave us. We are simply being faithful servants, Christ says. So if tithing isn't about what we can get, Why tithe? Again, Christ says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not about the money. It's about the redirection of our hearts. God says, stop hoarding your stuff. Stop hoarding everything for your own life. Invest into me. And in this instance for Israel, tithing is a step forward towards reconciliation. It is a step forward in mending their relationship with God. If they give to God, they will also be giving their hearts again. And it will be a radical step forward of rebuilding trust. Because they'll have to rely on him more. Tithing then is a very tangible way that we stop looking at ourselves for a moment. We stop worrying about how we're going to provide for our self-perceived needs. We step out in faith and we say, God, I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to depend on you. And I'm going to give sacrificially even when it doesn't make sense. What's actually going on in our hearts? We're saying, I can't control everything. We're confessing. I can't possibly meet all of my needs. I can't get by unless you show up, Lord but I'm going to trust you in this vulnerable space, this place of frailty. Because you know my needs better than I know my needs. You know my fears better than I know my fears. I'm going to depend on you, Lord. And depending on God in this way, stepping into a place of vulnerability is actually a step towards love. The poet Theodore Retke gets this. He wrote, Love is not love until love is vulnerable. Love is not love until love is vulnerable. And when we take a step forward in this vulnerability, God does not overlook it because it's a step towards love. It's from this place that God wants to engage us. Remember how Malachi begins. I've loved you, says the Lord your God. God wants Israel to know his love. But in order to to experience his love, they must also be vulnerable. And essentially, God is saying, if you 
take a step into this frail place. If you trust me, I will bless you again. I will restore you to the favor of the covenant. And yes, that can include economic prosperity. God does say, I will open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing upon you until there is no more need. But let's take note of what he doesn't say. He does not say that he will pour down a blessing until every want and fancy is satisfied. He simply says he'll make sure there is no need. He's, he's not saying if you tithe, you know, and, and you pray, and you really want those snakeskin cowboy boots, like guaranteed, it's going to be yours. Or if you, if you tithe and you're faithful in this way, I will have to bless you. This is not what's going on. We can't confuse the blessings that God gives as if they are coming as a result of Israel's tithing. It's not about the tithing. It's about returning to God with hearts open. God blesses not because he owes or is impressed uh, with our offering. God blesses because he delights in being in a relationship with his people. He delights in entering into that place of vulnerability and frailty with us. He delights in having our hearts given to us. He delights in our trust because God is far more concerned about our relationship with him. He is far more concerned about the condition of our hearts than he is about our money. Tithing It's never about your wallet. It is about your heart. And God says, go ahead. Try me in this area. Test me and see if I'm not faithful. He's offering a one-time guarantee to Israel to test him. Everywhere else in scripture, you can't test the Lord your God. And he says, all right, Israel, test me on this. See if I'm not faithful. Step into that scary place of vulnerability and see if I'm not trustworthy. What they'll find is that God will steady them with his love. That he is faithful. That he is trustworthy. Giving as hard as it can be for us. It helps us put money back in the place that it should be. And our hearts begin to take a different shape. We find that our self-concern changes. That we actually can look out to the needs of others and want to sacrifice for their sakes. We find that we, we hold our resources a little more loosely because it's not our resources that give us security in this world. We become grateful for what we do have. Our prayers should be marked by, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Our anxiety around money starts to dissipate because the moment that we stop holding it as some sort of functional savior is the moment that we're really starting to rely on God as the provider, as the one who cares for us. Our hearts change, but what shape do our hearts begin to take when we give? If they're not going to be wallet-shaped anymore, what happens? Our hearts become more like God's heart, because God's heart is a radically generous heart. He says to the people, if you, if you bring in the full tithe, I will open the heavens for you and pour down a blessing until there is no need. He will pr- prove himself to be the provider to be generous, and his generosity will be disproportionate to their faithfulness. But here in Malachi, this is just a glimpse into God's heart. God ultimately opens up the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing again. St. John in his gospel has famously said, for God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son. God opens up the heavens and steps into creation and pours out everything he has in his son. He gives us everything. He gives us all of his love, all of his possessions, everything that matters to him. And St. Paul reflects on this in Ephesians. He says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's blessed us in such a way that Christ makes us co-heirs. He makes us children so that our inheritance is everything. He's not held back. God in Christ has opened up the heavens and pours down a blessing that is disproportionate to our faithfulness. But we receive the blessing not because we've been so faithful, but as St. Paul says in Galatians, because Christ became the curse for us. That we might enter into the blessing of God because of his faithfulness, not our own. So do we give to get blessed? No. Goodness, no. We give because it changes our hearts. We give And sometimes that means we have to stop clinging so tightly to the things that we think actually provide for us. We open our hands so that we can receive from God, so we can rely on God. And our hearts, they start to take the shape of God's heart. And the important thing to realize is that when our hearts do this, when we start to reflect the profound generosity of the Father, God's life starts to shine more fully through us. Look at verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. God will bless Israel if they return to him. Not because the blessing is solely for them, but because he has a plan for them that the nations might see his generosity and his delight in his people and might turn to him. As the church, giving is tied to our witness. If we are generous as the church, God shines through that in such a way that people will look at it and say, there's something different about your generosity. God seems to delight in you. So giving is intertwined with our witness. So a quick last point. At St. Peter's, we encourage the practice of tithing. Why should you give to your local church? Uh, Aside from the fact that Scripture explicitly commands it. Let's just put that off the table for a second. You should invest into the church because you hold a conviction about what the church truly is. The church is not plan B or C or D in God's work in the world. The church is plan A. It is through the church that God is present in the world and working within the world. The church gathered in this room and then especially the church scattered throughout the city and throughout the world. It is the church who proclaims the good news of God's generosity in Christ. It is the church who goes out and binds up the brokenhearted. It is the church who goes out and provides for the poor. It is the church who goes out and takes care of the fatherless and the widows and the needy. If you don't think that is worth investing into, you need to reevaluate your understanding of what the church truly is. This is why we give to the church. But at St. Peter's, we also try to encourage uh, giving um, in in alignment with the spirit of grace. 
For some of you, that might be 10% right on the nose. 10% is sacrificial giving for you. For others, it might be significantly less than that for you, but that gift that you offer is just as sacrificial. For others of you, 10% is nothing. And so you give more than that. And it's not because you are so rich or because you're so much better than the people who give less. It's because you want to give in a sacrificial way that reflects the sacrificial generosity of Christ. That's what we're striving together and towards as a community. Here's the thing. If you don't want to tithe, that's fine. If you don't want to give to St. Peter's, it's fine. You're not robbing us. The scriptures say you're robbing God. And you need to take that up with him. And I want to say I get it. I know that it can be scary to step forward in this way. It can be scary to surrender some of our resources when we think we desperately need them. I want you to know we're here to talk about it. We're here to, to talk through your fears, to pray with you. But I want to encourage you to to talk to God about that. God is not wagging his finger at you saying, you're robbing me. He's running towards you saying, I want your heart. And your money is entwined with your heart in, in such a way that you need to let go of some of it so that your heart can be given more fully towards me. If this is hard for you, I want to encourage you to reflect upon the generosity of God. Reflect upon his care. Reflect upon his provision. Reflect upon how he is sovereign and he will not overlook you. Finally, I want to say, I care far more about you giving generously, not because we need it or because God needs it, but because you need it. We give because God uses this act of giving to shape our hearts, to become more like his generous heart. And in a very real way through giving We begin to trust God, but not only do we begin to trust God, we begin to experience for ourselves that God is trustworthy.